do you know which cemetery is the most visited in the United States? I confess, I do the cemetery podcast and I didn't even know the answer to this question until I did this week's research. A lot of the obvious ones that, as cemetery aficionados or just as Americans that we talk about, places like Arlington, places like Mount Auburn, Greenwood and Brooklyn, all would seem like very logical choices, but none of them is correct. To see the most visited cemetery in America, you have to go back a little further. Because if there's one thing that we love as Americans, it's the American Revolution. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So this is one of my cringy episodes. Not cringy because the research is bad or because the topic is bad, but I hate being stereotypical. But I think it's something that, first of all, people are interested in, and... I'm doing this for other people. It's not just for myself. I could very selfishly only cover topics which interest me, but then I wouldn't be doing justice to the actual topic itself. Secondarily, love it or hate it, it is the 4th of July this weekend. So I'm going to take you back and I am going to talk about the Colonial Cemeteries of Boston specifically the three cemeteries that are along the Freedom Trail. And I'm going to do this for a couple of different reasons. Obviously, these cemeteries contain the remains of some of the most recognizable people in American history, or at least mainstream American history. But in addition to that, I think that they tell a very specific tale. And there's only so much you can do with interpretive panels. I don't want to say I might anti-interpretive panel person, but I think that you need to look a little bit deeper. So I'm going to talk about the obvious characters. Uh, I'm going to talk about the, you know, Samuel Adams and Paul Revere's. But also I'm going to talk about few of the perhaps lesser known characters. Um, If you are familiar with sort of a broader multicultural view of American history, you might be familiar with some of these folks. But I want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, I think that this is a very interesting study about the intersection of cemeteries and tourism. Secondarily, I think it's important because there are so few opportunities to inform the general public about cemeteries and to consider the significance of these cemeteries in terms of often being perhaps the only cemetery that people encounter on an educational and historical basis as opposed to a personal basis just because someone they know is buried there. And thirdly, I think it's important to consider if we are using cemeteries as teaching tools, how does that translate? What stories are we telling and how representative are those stories of the actual history that occurred there? So... Without further ado, if you are not familiar with the Freedom Trail, I'm not sure if you've been living under a rock, but the Freedom Trail is a two and a half mile route that goes through Boston. Depending on whether or not you are on a street or anywhere else, it is generally marked by a trail of red bricks, which basically looks like a center dividing line where the bricks are kind of laid on their side to make a red line. And this red line, as I already said, 
goes two and a half miles through the city of Boston, eventually going through 16 sites that are considered significant in the early history of the United States. It begins at the Boston Common. It ends at the Bunker Hill Monument in Charlestown. Now, the majority of these sites along the trail are free. There are three exceptions, the Old South Meeting House, the Paul Revere House, and the Old State House all charge admission. Now, not all of the sites are actually from the colonial period. Likewise, many of them have evolved over time. Keep in mind, this is in the middle of a major U.S. city now. So as I already said, it starts at the Boston Common. The Boston Common, if you have been a longtime listener, you know commons were a big part of colonial settlements because they were common land. This is where the meeting house was going to be, the seat of government and the church in the Puritan world. In addition to that, it was common ground for the drilling of the militia, if you needed one, and common ground for grazing your livestock. The idea was that if there was an attack on the settlement, in this case, mostly Indian attacks in the early days of the colonies, you could bring everybody inside the fortifications of the town and they would still be able to keep their animals. The Massachusetts State House. Now, this is the modern state house, the one with the big gold dome. Obviously not from the colonial period, but still a stop. There is the Park Street Church. There is the Granary Burial Ground, which I will get to more later. The King's Chapel and the King's Chapel Burial Ground. Again, I'll go over that in more detail later. Boston Latin School. This is significant because of the statue of Benjamin Franklin out front. The Old Corner Bookstore, the Old South Meeting House, the Old State House, the site of the Boston Massacre, Faneuil Hall, Paul Revere's House, the Old North Church, Copps Hill Burial Ground, again I'll go over that in more detail, the USS Constitution, and the Bunker Hill Monument is where it ends. You will recall in the episode I did a few months ago on granite, I talked exclusively, well not exclusively, but extensively about... Bunker Hill Granite, the granite that was used for this monument, and the railroad that was built specifically for harvesting this granite. So if you're interested learning a little bit more about that and its significance and that period of history, please go back and listen to the episode that I did on granite back in March. So you might ask, has the Freedom Trail always been there? And the answer is no. It's actually a relatively recent idea. By recent, I mean 70 years old. That's another good excuse to do this this year because it is the 70th anniversary of the idea of the Freedom Trail. And it was originally proposed by journalist Bill Schofield, who wrote for the Boston Herald. And he was a travel and leisure writer. So this was kind of right up his alley. And he had some interesting ideas about this. Basically, he was looking at Boston as an entity, kind of being like, hey, we should probably do something about this to try to bring in more people. So very specifically, what he did was he was having a discussion with Bob Wynn, who was a member of the Old North Church uh, and on the board there. So in his column, which was called Have You Heard, on March 8, 1951, he suggested, quote, all as I, that I am suggesting is that we mark out a Puritan path or a Liberty Loop or a Freedom's Way or whatever you want to call it, so that visitors and locals will know where to start and what course to follow. 
You could do the trick on a budget with just a few dollars and a bucket of paint. Not only would it add to the personality of the city, but it would sure please the tourists. So that is the origins on the Freedom Trail. So the mayor of Boston at the time, a man named John Hines, he latched onto this idea and he said, geez, that's not a bad concept. So on June 11th, 1951, he actually put into effect an order that painted signs onto 30 prominent street corners in Boston. Basically, signposts pointing like this way to historic stuff. At the time, the Freedom Trail was only about a mile, included far less sites. But this is the origins. Now, the estimate was within the first two years that the Freedom Trail opened, it had something like 40,000 visitors, which is crazy. But keep in mind, this is the 1950s. Post-war America, you have an increase in the amount of people with automobiles, travel by automobiles becoming increasingly popular. This could not have happened at a better time. So, in 1958, they added the red line. Positive connotations only here, hopefully. Um, This actually created the path. Um, It's gone through several iterations. Originally, it was just painted. Now it's the brick line. The big thing that happened was in 72, they expanded it. Now, the reason for this is that the Freedom Trail Foundation had been instituted in 1964. So about 15 years after the trail originally started, they actually created a governing body to raise money and to take care of it. At that point, they're estimating a half a million visitors a year. So they start to get highly organized and they extend it in 72. 72, basically the Freedom Trail that you see today was created in 1972. And this is the point where they expand it all the way out to Charlestown. Two years later, in 1974... Boston National Historic Park is created. Now, this was created by the National Park Service. It's similar to the situation in Philadelphia where you have Independence Park, though, thank God, (laughs) when they created the park in Boston, it was far less destructive than Independence Park. If you are ever interested, please Google that. The amount of destruction of very significant non-colonial buildings that they did in Philadelphia is just atrocious. Um, The amount of Frank Furness buildings alone that they took out in Philadelphia because they wanted to make it a colonial park um, is really, really sad. Lots of beautiful 19th century buildings were destroyed to make Independence Park. Off my soapbox. But so the purpose here was, quote, to preserve for the benefit and inspiration of the people of the United States as a national historic park, certain properties and structures of outstanding historical significance located in Boston, Massachusetts and associated with the American Revolution and founding of the United States. Now, there is no coincidence that this happens in 74. Everybody is ramping up for the bicentennial and they see a lot of dollar signs by focusing on this particular era, by trying to create something associated with 1776 and the founding of the United States was gold at that time. Talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents. All of them were going to these events. It was very big. I can't even tell you, my grandmother's house, I swear, she still has so much stuff from the Bicentennial. She has, you know, TV trays that have American eagles on them, and everything had an American flag on it. There was a huge push. And a lot of this preservation, particularly in this part of the country, happens to coincide with the Bicentennial. The Freedom Trail today 
and I was frankly shocked. Has approximately 4 million visitors per year and brings in a billion dollars in revenue. Yes, that's billion. It's big money. Now, I can say this. I have done the Freedom Trail, not the whole thing, I will admit. At least the core of the Freedom Trail. I would say conservatively five times. The majority of the times I did it, I did it with a school group. I was a teacher for 12 years. I taught a lot in Massachusetts. I did a lot of field trips to the Freedom Trail. They don't generally go all the way out to Charlestown. They generally stop and just do the stuff that's right there in the center. But I've done it a number of times. I understand why it's appealing. It is very American, American history. It is the equivalent of drive-through history. You see it, you read the instructional panel, you keep moving. I don't want to say it's overly dumbed down, but it's pretty dumbed down. If you want to experience history without actually having to experience history, this is for you. It is, I would argue, you know, even less so, I know a lot of people hate Colonial Williamsburg, but Colonial Williamsburg, I think at least makes a very strong attempt to keep everything authentic. And while it is very expensive and closed and not ideal, I think it does a better job than the Freedom Trail. Now, granted, it's probably been 10 years since I did the Freedom Trail. Maybe they have vastly improved it. I don't know. My theory is that's why it's so popular as an attraction, though, is because it is very easily digestible history that you don't have to think about too much. But you still leave, a, leave being satisfied with it. And some of the sites do better jobs than others. What we're going to be focusing on is we are going to be looking, obviously, specifically at the burial grounds. And so thank you for bearing with me for that basic history because I felt like I needed to give that to you. It's also worth mentioning that that Boston National Historic Park that I mentioned, seven of the sites between the Freedom Trail and that overlap, not all of them. Thirdly, there is an African-American Heritage Trail in Boston as well. None of the sites overlap with the Freedom Trail. But I am certainly going to be talking a little bit about black history today. And there is an intersection of it, without a doubt. The second thing I want to talk about is the Historic Burial Grounds Initiative. And I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, probably not in depth. In 1776, just kidding. So in 1976, the year of the Bicentennial, The Boston Parks and Recreation Department, Boston Landmarks Commission, the Bostonian Society, the Massachusetts Historical Commission, and the Association for Gravestone Studies all banded together to create the Historic Burial Grounds Initiative. Now, this would have been proto-AGS. This is my theory because AGS isn't technically founded until 77. But I think the Association for Gravestone Studies comes out of the Historic Burial Grounds Initiative. That's my theory. I have not had that confirmed. But guess what? Guess who holds all the records from the early days of the Historic Burial Grounds Initiative? AGS. They are part of the AGS collection, which is at UMass Amherst. This was a push to do a couple of things. First, to inventory the colonial era headstones of Boston, of which there are approximately 15,000. 
The second was to develop a master plan for the care of these colonial era cemeteries. Now, there are 16 cemeteries that are overseen by the Historic Burial Grounds Initiative, which does now exist under the auspices of the Boston Department of Parks and Recreation. Of these, 12 are the colonial era burial grounds, including the three that I will be talking about today that are on the Freedom Trail, which is Granary Burial Ground, King's Chapel Burial Ground, and Copps Hill. There are also three later garden-style cemeteries, all of which I believe are still active, that are also under the auspices. They had two master plans. I have seen different dates for the original master plan. I have seen both 1985 and 1989. I'm going to lean towards 1989. Just based on what I have seen, I haven't seen the whole thing. So they put out a master plan basically for the long-term care, maintenance, and preservation of these cemeteries. About a decade later, in 1998, it was updated, and they still make regular recommendations. I really can't overstate how much good that the Historic Burial Grounds Initiative has done. It's something that only works in a vacuum. It only works in cities like Boston. I doubt even Philadelphia could probably muster something quite this organized. Many of these cemeteries are really in pristine condition because of a combination of public and private support. Some of the best conservatives out, conservators out there are working on these burial grounds. You can look at specific projects. There are so, so many that they have done. They've rebuilt walls. They've restored tombs. Like They do incredible work. Again, I don't know if it's necessarily practical on any other level in a place that has less money or less national attention. Because some of that billion-dollar revenue from the Freedom Trail is also going back into the cemeteries because they are important sites along the trail. All three of the cemeteries not only are part of the Burial Grounds Initiative, but they were all inventoried and put on priority lists as part of Phase 1. So that, I think, speaks a lot to their significance. So, we're almost 20 minutes in. But without further ado, let's start talking a little bit about these cemeteries. When I did the research, I actually did the research in reverse order. But I'm going to start in chronological order with the earliest cemetery and move forward from there. The first thing that you have to understand when we're talking about these cemeteries is that there is a very specific culture that is occurring in colonial Massachusetts. Going back to your, you know, American history, you probably remember that the Pilgrims and the folks who founded Boston, which were two separate groups, were all separatists. They had separated from the Church of England, what we would today call the Anglican Church, because they felt that it was too indulgent, too papist, too focused on ceremony and wealth, and they believed in a more austere, pure religion. Now, the origins of Puritanism are complex. I'm not going to get too far into them, but what you need to understand is that the evolved Puritan church today is what we would call congregationalism. So because this colony was founded by people who were not Anglican, even though they were from England, they didn't practice the same religion as the majority of people in England at the time. They set up their own burial grounds. They set up their own meeting houses, which were very simple in nature. 
And I bring this up because the first cemetery in Boston is actually what is today known as the King's Chapel Burying Ground. Now, it's a little confusing because the burying ground predates King's Chapel itself. So King's Chapel is not founded until 1686, and it is founded as an Anglican church. One of the reasons that it is founded right next to the burying ground is because nobody in the colony would sell land to build an Anglican church because none of them were Anglican. Without getting too deep into the religious implications of this, this means that you have a secular, and I use secular loosely because early Massachusetts was, to all intents and purposes, a theocracy. You have a secular cemetery or a burying ground where everyone communally could be buried that is next to an Anglican church but is not in and of itself Anglican, which is probably very confusing, and I understand why that would be confusing. But I just bring it up. It's confusing because a lot of people think that the King's Chapel burying ground is associated with the building. It's not. The building comes after. Very interesting, beautiful building. One of the most significant examples of Georgian architecture surviving. But the burying ground comes first. So the burying ground is founded in 1630. Not long after, you will recall, when the first group lands in Massachusetts, if you recall your history, 1620, 1621 is when the Pilgrims land at Plymouth. Again, not necessarily the start of history in America, but if we're going by the traditional history that you learned in school. It remains the only cemetery in Boston for almost three decades, until 1659. King's Chapel Burying Ground is founded on the land of Isaac Johnson, and as often happens with colonial-era cemeteries, he is actually the first person buried there. It's on his land. You could argue that it starts almost as a family cemetery. In reality, it starts as a cemetery of need. This is also very common, particularly at this point in American history. Now, King's Chapel is the smallest of the three cemeteries. It has about 505 headstones, 59 footstones, and approximately 1,000 burials. So roughly half of the burials are marked. It also has 78 tombs, 36 of which are marked. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about tombs later on. We do know that one of these tombs was originally used as a charnel house, which is interesting. Going back to the very beginning of the podcast, if you remember me talking about charnel houses, you will recall that charnel houses are essentially where remains end up when graves are only being used temporarily. So they bury a body, generally for around seven years, wait for it to decay down to a skeleton, and then they remove the skeleton, put the bones in a charnel house, and they reuse the grave. This is still the practice in many European cities that allow in-ground burials. The caveau, which is the tradition down in New Orleans, if you look at the traditional tombs that you can find in the majority of New Orleans cemeteries, is sort of a riff on the charnel house, except the caveau is basically a pit beneath the tomb where you push the bones and they fall down into the pit. All of this to say, in many ways, King's Chapel, it's a European cemetery, at least in its origins. I think it starts to evolve and become more American in nature later on. But it does start off in the European tradition, and I think that's an important thing to note. That charnel house will later be used as a children's tomb, starting in like the 1830s. It also has many tabletop tombs. Again, 
this is hearkening back to an earlier era. Tabletop tombs are extremely popular in England, and you find them in many of the high-style cemeteries founded right after the beginning of the colonies. So you can see a lot of these in Williamsburg. You can see a lot of them in Alexandria, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina. These people are clearly bringing their English traditions and putting them in the New World. Now, King's Chapel probably has the least number of people whose names you would recognize in terms of American history. That's not to say that none of them are significant. So, for example, Mary Chilton is buried there. She is known as to be the first English woman to set foot in Massachusetts. She was one of the pilgrims that landed at Plymouth. Another one you're probably familiar with is a man named William Emerson. Now, if you have been listening for a while, you have probably heard the episode that Ashley and I did on Authors Ridge in Concord, Massachusetts, where I talked about his son, who you're probably more familiar with, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Now, William Emerson was a minister, very influential in Boston. His son obviously would later become known as one of the significant writers of the Transcendentalist movement. But he does die in Boston, and he is buried at King's Chapel Burying Ground. Now, the third you're probably going to be the least familiar with. You have probably never heard of her in terms of her name, but I guarantee you that you have heard of the character that she inspired. And this is a woman named Elizabeth Payne. Now, Elizabeth Payne is generally considered to be the inspiration for Hester Prynne. So again, going back to your high school education, you may recall that Hester Prynne is the protagonist heroine of The Scarlet Letter. The woman who is caught in an adulterous relationship has a child out of wedlock and as a punishment in Puritan society is doomed to wear the Scarlet Letter A on her chest for adultery. Now, if you made it all the way through the Scarlet Letter, good for you, you will at the end read about the burial of Hester Prynne. And they talk about how Hester Prynne is buried in a grave that is just inches away, potentially from her lover, but they are still separated even in death. And the fact is, is that he describes this talking about the burying ground, which is next to the new king's chapel and he talks about her grave also having the a emblazoned upon it now if you look at the gravestone of elizabeth payne who we do know was put on trial for fornication or adultery you can see that it has a heraldric a so think of like a coat of arms in this case it's a coat that on one side has two lions obviously a very popular symbol for Great Britain and is used in a lot of coat of arms. But on the other side is a very stylized A. Now, if you have read The Scarlet Letter, you might also remember that the introduction to The Scarlet Letter is actually a whole chapter on the Custom House in Salem. And we know that Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is the author, worked at the customs house, and he's very much poking fun at his co-workers, and he's describing a place that he actually worked. So clearly he draws from his own inspiration in his writing, so it's not crazy to think that he may have been wandering through King's Chapel burying ground. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne is a contemporary of what Ralph Waldo Emerson. He He travels in the same literary circles. It's not crazy to think that he was wandering through the cemetery this very unique headstone catches his eye. 
he hears the story about this woman being put on trial and he extrapolates out on it. So she may not be the actual inspiration for Hester Prynne, but, you know, give an author credit. He saw something and it definitely inspired him. And I think that any author who has ever written a book probably is inspired in part by things that they have observed in their real life. So I thought that was probably the most interesting one that I could think of there. Now, King's Chapel, partially because of the construction of the actual King's Chapel, starts to fill up pretty fast. And this makes sense. Over a 30-year period, when it is the only burying ground in the city, it's going to fill up fast. Now, what happens in the late 1650s? Two things. First of all, Boston has expanded. And it is starting to expand because not only is the population growing, but people are using the land differently. As a result, they established two cemeteries within a year. One will become known as the North Burying Ground. One will become known as the South Burying Ground. The North Burying Ground is founded first in 1659. It is what today we call the Copps Hill Burial Ground. The South Burying Ground is what we today call the Old Granary Burying Ground. And that is located almost right next to King's Chapel. So if you recall what I just said about the Freedom Trail, the Freedom Trail starts at the Boston Common. The Boston Common was originally much larger. In fact, it went almost all the way to where King's Chapel Burying Ground is. Today, it's a five-minute walk. You can walk the first few sites of the Freedom Trail within five minutes. That's how close they are. And if you look at it on Google Earth, where the Granary Burial Ground is, you can very clearly see it was sort of the tail end of the Boston Common. And at the very point of the Boston Common, across the street is King's Chapel. It's one of the things that I think, maybe if you come from a small town, you might understand this. We as Americans, particularly those of us who live in cities today, tend to forget how small settlements were back then. The fact that these are all walkable in a two and a half mile span now, which I know met plenty of people who are runners and cyclists and things like that, who do far more than that on a routine basis, it's not a lot of distance. But at the time, the settlements were much smaller. I think about that every time I think about Savannah and the fact that Savannah used to end at where today's Oglethorpe Avenue is. And you can walk to the river in a five-minute walk now. But the population was so small, and we tend to forget this now in a city of Boston that has millions. So I'm going to start with Copps Hill because it is chronologically earlier. The North Burying Ground is located on a very prominent part of the city. And by prominent, I mean physically prominent. It is on the high ground. It is actually the third highest hill in Boston. Now, obviously, Beacon Hill, if you're familiar, is where the capital is. That's the whole dream that they had of a shining city on the hill. But it's strategically placed on a high point. Now, the name Cop comes from a man named William Cop, who was a shoemaker. And he owned a great deal of the land around there. Now, of the three historic cemeteries that I'm talking about today, Copps Hill is by far the largest. Compared to King's Chapel, which only has about 1,000 burial, Copps Hill has 10 times that. So roughly 10,000 burials from what they estimate. Only about 1,200 of them are marked. Now, as you might imagine, as the city expands, this is the outskirts. This is the area that's overlooking Charlestown. So this is sort of the extension. As a result, this tends to be where some of the poorer folks live. This is one of the reasons that there are fewer marked burials. 
the larger size also means that there are more family tombs. So they will just have one marker as opposed to markers for everybody that's there. The third reason was this is the part of town where the majority of African Americans lived. And they lived in a community that was basically at the foot of Copps Hill, and that was called the New Guinea community. So there is an estimate that as many as a thousand unmarked graves in the cemetery actually belonged to the black community of Boston at the time. And if you go there today, the part of the cemetery that's closest to Snow Hill Street is where the majority of those burials are going to be. It is interesting to note, though, that these early cemeteries, for the most part, are not segregated. Now, in this case, the community tended to be buried together in the same part of the cemetery. But also, when I get to some of um, the burials at Granary, for example, John Hancock and one of his slaves, they are buried right next to each other. This is something that is slightly different in, you know, in terms of historical significance with the way that cemeteries are laid out. So the original land came from two men, John Baker and Daniel Turrell, and they quickly filled this land up. You can see that this land is becoming very, very popular. So it's interesting because the first expansion that happens to this particular cemetery comes from a very significant man. And this is in 1708 when it's expanded with land that is given by Samuel Sewell, or Sewell, S-E-W-A-L-L, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about him later when I get to Granary Burial Ground. The second expansion happens a year later when a small family cemetery that had been started by Charles Wells, who was the mayor of Boston, was merged. Now, we know about these transactions from primary source documents, but we don't know what they actually looked like. It's very difficult to piece out, like, this is where one cemetery ended, this is where another cemetery began, all of those things. It's slightly just more general, honestly. Um, We are able to piece together when it was expanded and the fact that it was originally smaller, but that's about it. This is probably the largest, not just in terms of burials, but also in terms of tombs. Again, I keep teasing this, but I want to talk about tombs in depth, and I'm going to wait until I get to Granary, just because I've got a good tomb story that goes along with that cemetery. This cemetery was not originally on the Freedom Trail, mainly because it is a little bit geographically further out. It was added in 1972 as part of that last expansion, And it was added to the National Register two years later in 74, which again, if you'll recall, was when that Boston Heritage Park was all created. In terms of American history, though, especially associated with the Revolution, there's a couple of big things. So first you have Edmund Hart, who is the man who built the USS Constitution, Old Ironsides, which is also one of the stops on the Freedom Trail, and Robert Newman, who is the man who hung the lamps in the church the night of Paul Revere's famous ride. You know, one if by land, two if by sea. Interestingly enough, the Old North Church is just down the hill from Copps Hill as well. So again, this may seem like it's a little bit geographically further out there, but a lot of the important players in the early American history and a lot of the events happen right on its doorstep. Indeed, when it comes to the Revolutionary War, which I know is jumping ahead because we started in 1659, Because it is the high ground, it will actually be occupied by the British for part of the war. This is where they set up their North Battery and Earthenworks. 
this is where they basically directed the bombardment of Charlestown, which is where Bunker Hill is. And also where they basically orchestrated the torching of Charlestown, which would be burned during the war. Believe it or not, this happens quite frequently in cemeteries. Here in Atlanta, Oakland Cemetery was where General Hood watched the Battle of Atlanta. Um, perhaps not as dramatic here in Atlanta, but certainly a lot of times cemeteries are built on these promontories. They're built on lands that you can't farm. So like rocky hillsides. And as a result, they tend to be very good strategically if you were waging war. So a couple of interesting people, depending on how well you remember your American history or how in-depth or diverse it was, I want to talk about. So the first are actually two of the black citizens of Boston that are buried there. And the first of these is Phyllis Wheatley. Now, Phyllis Wheatley, if you remember, probably not necessarily from American history, but from American literature. She is basically the first published black author in the United States. And she publishes a very significant book of poetry. She's born in 1753, somewhere in West Africa. We don't know exactly where. Usually, they argue it's either Gambia or Senegal. She is sold into slavery somewhere around the age of seven or eight, and she is owned by a man in Boston named John Wheatley. Now, Wheatley was a wealthy merchant. He and his wife, Susanna, very early on in Phyllis's enslavement, they actually named her Phyllis after the ship that she came over on. They started to recognize that she was extremely intelligent. And so their daughter, Mary, and their son, Nathaniel, jointly started to teach Phyllis very early on, soon after she was enslaved by the family. So much so that by the age of 12, she could not only read and write English, but also Greek and Latin. She was arguably probably one of the most educated women in the colony at the time, black or white. She also began to write poetry, and she modeled a lot of her poetry on not just famous authors that were contemporary, people like Alexander Pope and John Milton, but also classical Roman and Greek authors. So she had read Homer and Horace and Virgil, and all of her works very heavily borrow from their styles. In 1773, at the age of 20, she went along with Nathaniel to England because they thought that in England she may have a better chance of getting her works published. So while she was over there, they did succeed. They got some wealthy patrons, many of whom were members of the aristocracy, to invest and to get her book published. And there was almost universal acclaim for it. People saw her as being very, very clever. Unfortunately, shortly after she returns to the United States, those who enslave her, so both of the Wheatleys, who had emancipated her, but they die. So Susanna dies in 1774, John in 1778, and without them, Phyllis is basically left on her own. So she does marry a man named John Peters, who is a grocer, um, and life really goes downhill pretty quickly for her. He is very poor. Um, she has two children, both of whom die in infancy, and we don't know a lot about her later life. We do know that she had suffered from asthma from the majority of her life. That was one of the reasons that she went to England, was to try to seek better treatment for it. But regardless, she dies at the age of 31 on December 5th, 1784, and then her third child and infant son dies shortly after. And all of them are buried at Copps Hill. The other really significant member of the black community in Boston that is buried there is Prince Hall. Now, 
you may be more familiar with Prince Hall in the larger scope of his name, and you may have seen it on buildings. And that is because he is generally considered to be the father of black Freemasonry. We don't know a ton about his personal life. We know he was born somewhere around 1735. He dies in 1807. He's very involved in a lot of different actions in Boston. So not just black rights and being a leader of the black community, but also advocating mainly for education and to try to better blacks through community. And this is where Freemasonry comes. He and several of his friends had attempted to join the Freemasons and were refused because of their race. And so he extends it out and he starts his own chapters. And this is why you may have heard the name Prince Hall before. So you will see like the Prince Hall chapter of the Freemasons and things like that. If it is, it is primarily black Freemasonry because it is named for him. Again, we don't know much about his personal life. We do know that he was likely enslaved by a tanner somewhere around the age of 11 because later on he does own a leather works. He has both an individual headstone, which was paid for at the time of his death, and also a really impressive um, Masonic monument, which was put there in the 1830s. You can see that there is a push to really try to beautify the cemeteries around that time. I think because you have, you know, the rural cemetery movement really changing the way that people see burying grounds. So his stuff is pretty impressive if you look those up. A interesting white gentleman, I bring this up because he both has an interesting monument and he has an interesting story, and I'm a little bit selfish, is a man named uh, George Worthy Lake. So he's one of the earlier burials. Um, he dies in 1718, and he's the first lighthouse keeper in the United States. I love cemeteries, but my second love is lighthouses. I really love lighthouses. So he was the first lighthouse keeper at Boston Light, which is the first lighthouse station established in the United States. It is on an island in Boston Harbor. And he and his entire family drowned returning from church, going back to the lighthouse. Now, ironically, his replacement two weeks later also drowns on his way out to the lighthouse. <laughs> you can see there was not a lot of great luck. Maybe just stay home from church. Um, but he, his wife, and his daughter actually have a rare triple headstone, which is really impressive at Cops Hill. So interesting little bit of history. Like I said, I'm selfish because I love lighthouses. And also, if you are looking for interesting monuments in the cemetery, that is also the really striking one. Now, I cannot talk about Cops Hill, and I will finish with the Mathers. So you are probably most familiar with Cotton Mather. So Increase is the grandfather, his son is Cotton, and then the grandson is Samuel Mather. Um, Increase and Cotton are probably most famous for their fiery sermons. They are very involved in the Puritan life of early Massachusetts. Cotton in particular definitely helps to fan the fire in a lot of circumstances. They are buried in a family tomb. And it's the Mather family tombs. They don't have individual headstones. But family tombs are a big thing. People are often confused when they go to these colonial era burying grounds. And I'm going to use family tombs to kind of transition here. When you go to these cemeteries, you don't understand why there are so many burials on such a small piece of land. And this has to do with family tombs. Now, when we think of tombs, we most often think of mausoleums, and these aren't. Now, the only time I've really talked about this was when I did the episode on Washington Square Park, and I talked about the church crypts that were found 
when they were doing road work back in 2015. And then I talked about how sloppy archaeology led to this because they had been previously discovered back in the 60s. These church vaults are very similar to the family tombs that exist in Boston. If you go to Colonial Park Cemetery in Savannah, there are likewise, they have different tops. But these are all basically underground vaults. Trinity Church in New York is another example. The original Trinity Church down on like the base of Broadway down by um, Wall Street. Not the new one, which is further up, like going towards Harlem because they have two cemeteries. These crypts are pretty extensive. I actually was trying to do more research on these and I found an extraordinary little drawing, which I will publish. It's actually the only place I was able to find it was in the Boston Cemetery's newsletter. But these underground crypts are pretty extraordinary because they are huge. They are brick or stone, generally brick, measuring roughly eight by 12 feet underground. And there's a large burial chamber that has a vaulted ceiling. The vaulted ceiling is usually about eight feet in height. So they're basically underground mausoleums with shelves for family members. They are accessed by a stairway, generally made of granite with brick walls. And then at the top, this is covered, generally with a large piece of slate, like a ledger stone. Now, sometimes it is engraved, but not always. Sometimes it simply is covered over with dirt. Now, this is part of the problem because... When we get to our third burial ground, which is actually the old granary burial ground, they don't even know where all of these are. Now, originally they were in the middle of cemeteries. Later on, they figured out that it was better to move them to the edges. But in 2000, I've seen nine or 11. Um, I think it was, I've seen some confusion about it either way. They actually discovered a family tomb that they had no idea even existed because somebody fell through the deteriorated slate and fell into the tomb, a visitor to the cemetery. Talk about a jolt to the system. In this case, it actually, they didn't come into contact with human remains. They fell into the stairwell because the slab goes over the stairs, not over the tomb itself. But in this case, because they didn't know it was there, they hadn't been doing any upkeep and maintenance, which is pretty scary. So I know I teased it at the top of the episode. I'm going to actually tell you now what the most visited graveyard in the United States is. And that is the old Granary Burial Ground. This is the third cemetery established in Boston. As I already mentioned, it's essentially established concurrently with Cops Hill, which I just talked about. This was considered to be the South Burial Ground. Now, as with most things, the name evolves over time, and it takes its name from the 12,000 bushel grain storage building, which was once adjacent. Keep in mind that this was all part of the Boston Common at the time. So where the Park Street Church is now is essentially where there was originally a granary. The Puritans were nothing if not practical, so what they essentially did was they had multiple things all going on kind of in conjunction with each other because it was common land. Granary is the most visited of the three cemeteries, I think because, no, I don't think, it is because of who was buried there. While there are certainly interesting things about 
both Copps Hill and King's Chapel burying grounds, they don't have the American factor. So despite being less than two acres, it is still very small. It's significantly larger than King's Chapel burying ground, but definitely not as impressive in terms of size and space as Copps Hill. There is, and it's really hard, depends on who you talk to, depends on what source you read. It's estimated that there are probably about 5,000 burials at the Granary Burial Ground. There are 2,345 stones. So again, less than half of them are marked. It's great if you read older accounts of this burial ground because, as I already mentioned about the Boston Common, there is livestock grazing there, so there are actually fines placed on people who allow their cattle to roam and damage headstones, which I think is great. This is still a huge problem in places like the Midwest and in Canada, which I did not realize until somebody sent me an article not too long ago about it. But this appears probably because of its central location and the era during which it was most used, the cemetery. So if you go there today, you are in no way seeing what it looked like historically, mainly because the majority of the headstones were rearranged in the Victorian era with the advent of the lawnmower, where they were placed in straight lines. Some of them have been moved multiple times. There are estimates that say that Virtually none of the graves are where they originally were. Unless we have documentation from the time, which generally only happens with famous people, we have no idea where these people were buried. The records are not great. And as I said, they have played musical headstones, so it's anybody's guess. This is the cemetery that the majority of people have an experience with. It may be the only historic cemetery that they ever go to. And it's hard because it doesn't give you an impression of what historic cemeteries are actually like. First of all, to stop erosion and damage, they have basically blocked off so you can only stand on the paths now. You can't wander in and out of the headstones, so you're quite far from some of the markers. This is particularly important with like the more popular markers. They're trying to protect them. Um, the erosion was really bad. like It was almost impossible to keep grass there. They had to remove a lot of the trees for the same reasons to allow more grass to grow. It gets roughly a million visitors per year, which still, if you remember my statistics from the Freedom Trail, means only one in four people goes to the cemetery. Tell me that Americans don't have a prejudice against death, because they certainly do. But they do because this is where the biggies are buried. So in no particular order, John Hancock, signer of the Declaration of Independence... Paul Revere, have heard of him. Benjamin Franklin's parents. This is probably the most prominent monument in the cemetery. There is a large um, monument to him. It's not quite an obelisk, but basically a, a pointed monument in the center of the cemetery. Samuel Adams, heard of him. Actually, the bar across the street advertises that they are the only place that you can have a Sam Adams while looking at Sam Adams. James Otis, um, probably one of the lesser-known American revolutionaries, but you have probably heard of his famous line, taxation without representation is tyranny. 
Robert Treat Payne, also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. The other big grave, and again, this is where I say like the more noteworthy ones, you tend to know where they are, is the common grave with the five victims of the Boston Massacre. So Crispus Attucks, James Caldwell, Patrick Carr, Samuel Gray, and Samuel Maverick, along with uh, a young man named Christopher Sider, who died about two weeks before the Boston Massacre, when he was shot by a British customs agent. So all of the victims of the early rumblings of the American Revolution are all buried there. This is why people go to Granary. This is why it's more popular than both Copps Hill and King's Chapel, despite the fact that they're all on the Freedom Trail. This is why. People go to see the biggies. And I'm not criticizing that. It's how I started up here. When I started doing my research, I started my research with Old Granary Burial Ground because it's the one I've been to. I've actually never been to Copps Hill. Full confession, I've been to both King's Chapel and the Old Granary Burial Ground because these are the noteworthy ones. They are also the closest ones to the Boston Common, so it's very easy to walk there. The other noteworthy thing is that there is a infant's tomb or the Tomb of the Innocents. This was a common tomb that was owned by the city of Boston, and it's estimated that over a 31 period, 481 infants were buried there, which says a lot about infant mortality at this time period. Now, it's very interesting if you look again at the layout here. So obviously there are pauper burials who may not have been able to afford a gravestone. One of the most noteworthy things about Old Granary, though, like the other colonial burial grounds of Boston, is the fact that more often than not, people are actually buried in tombs as opposed to individual earthen graves. And Granary will continue to be expanded. Um, It was enlarged in May of 1717 onto the side that now borders Tremont Street in Boston. At this point, 15 new tombs were added. And then later... It was beautified with the addition of paths, planting trees, and the addition of Isaiah Rogers' very distinctive Egyptian revival gate, which was, um, you know, the height of fashion in the 1830s and 1840s. If you have been to the cemetery for Truro Synagogue in Newport, yeah, that's the second connection between the Freedom Trail in Boston and Truro Synagogue in Newport. Uh, Isaiah Rogers also designed an identical Egyptian revival gate for that cemetery. Um... Remember the Grove Street Burial Ground in New Haven? Got a new Egyptian revival gate. Mount Auburn Cemetery, Egyptian revival gate. You cannot say that these people were not predictable and when they were trying to market their cemeteries, because it certainly was. So when we say tombs, what are we talking about? Now, this is something that you probably don't know, and it's something that I don't think that they explain very well, and I don't think that they really work on it and I actually had to do quite a bit of research to find some good graphics and I ended up finding a really good really detailed description in of all places the newsletter for the Historic Burial Grounds Commission of Boston where there was a whole thing called everything you ever wanted to know about tombs so if you go back to the episode that I did last September where I talked about Washington Square Park in New York, and I talked about the crypts that they found underneath the ground. 
these are going to be very similar. So essentially what they did was they built underground vaults as opposed to individual graves. These vaults, which are made of brick or stone, are roughly 8 by 12 underground. 8 feet wide, 12 feet in length, and then they have an 8-foot vaulted ceiling. So essentially you are digging a big hole in the ground, you are creating a burial chamber, then you are covering it with dirt so it is not visible. This was a very popular move. If you go to Trinity Church in New York near Wall Street, identical. Most of the burials that you see are not individual graves, but rather underground vaults. The same is true of the two original marble cemeteries in New York. The marble cemeteries, if you don't remember those, they were sort of the transition in New York between the old school colonial era graveyards and modern rural cemeteries. So the marble cemeteries were sort of an in-between. And that's the reason that if you look into the marble cemeteries, they look very flat and there's very few markers. Well, there's two. One has basically no markers, and that's because they're all underground vaults. So you have this generally brick vault underground, which is accessed by a stairway. Now, the stairway has walls. It extends out from it. They are generally granite stairs with either brick or stone walls. The top has a large ledger-sized piece of slate over it, blocking off the staircase so that nobody can go down. Then sometimes they are left exposed. Sometimes the ledger will have the family name or just, you know, family name and vault. Most often, though, they are just covered with dirt, so you would never know that they're there. This is why, <laughs> and can you imagine, uh, in... 2009, I believe, a previously unknown tomb in the Granary Burial Ground was discovered when a tourist fell through that piece of slate, which had deteriorated over time, and went sliding into the stairwell. Talk about most people's worst nightmare. Hey, this is why I don't go to cemeteries, because I fell into a crypt. But that's the problem with covering these things up. It's the reason that they keep getting hit every time they dig around Washington Square Park because there are brick vaults underneath the streets. Now, luckily the person was not injured. They didn't fall far. They did not come into contact with any human remains. They essentially fell into the top part of the staircase, the part that you would have stepped into had you removed the slate the way it was supposed to be removed. And they were able to assess it and do repairs, et cetera, et cetera. But the majority of these, and the, these... Vaults and tombs do kind of evolve over time. Eventually, they end up with a lot of, like, wall vaults in some of the more distant cemeteries, which are also um, in Boston. But the original style were this, like an underground brick vault. And the same thing is true in Colonial Park Cemetery in Savannah. When you see those bedstead tombs, it's slightly different design, but those access underground vaults. So all of that stuff is a very colonial-era thing that I think has been lost in terms of consciousness, it's something that people tend to have forgotten. And that's why I want to talk a little bit about this, because that's why people have this misconception, like, how can there be so many people buried here? Well, because they were built in these huge underground vaults that could hold 8, 10, sometimes 20 people. And often, as bodies deteriorated, they would add more people and just push the bones to the end. The same way that the tombs in New Orleans work, just with a slightly different design. Instead of pushing the bones into a caveau, they would just make room kind of push them to the end, if that makes sense. 
So I wanted to go into that just so you could kind of get an idea of what things were like there because I think it's an important thing to take into account. One of my favorite facts, too, is the fact that, so first of all, there were standards for how these were built, and that's one of the reasons that many of them have survived as long as they did. But also, at Granary Burial Ground, at the very least, you had to pay for a common drain. So you had to pay for your vault to tie into a common drain where all of the groundwater would drain, and it would drain onto the Boston Common to help grow grass there so that livestock could eat. Mmm, tasty grave drainage. Love it. But anybody that works in a cemetery, and I have lots of friends who do cemetery preservation, knows that water is the great enemy and that drainage is something that you need to think about, particularly with underground vaults and crypts. So they were very smart. And by forcing you to pay, it's like kind of like forcing you to pay to tie into the sewer system in your town. It ensures that the infrastructure is there so that things don't back up and things don't backfire on you. And Boston, in their meeting minutes, actually talks about the fact that they can take over crypts. If you are not maintaining it, if you're not taking care of it the way that you should and doing repairs as they are needed, they can repossess that. And at certain points in history, as late as the turn of the last century, Boston actually has some of these crypts which they have taken over because families are not maintaining them, which I think is very interesting. And I suspect that's how they came to own the common tomb that was known as the tomb of the innocents or the children's tomb i could be wrong but that's my theory at least now we went over the famous people who are buried here let's talk a little bit about just some specific examples i bring this up for a couple of reasons just because i think it kind of brings into slightly clearer concept like exactly what these cemeteries looked like and how they were used. So, for example, the Judge Samuel Sewell, S-E-W-A-L-L, Sewell, Sewell, um, born March 28th, 1652, died January 1st, 1730. Now, you are probably most familiar with him from the Salem Witch Trials. Have done an episode all about that as well. He was one of the many judges who were part of, well, one of nine, not many, but a number of judges who were assigned to the court of Oyer and Terminer, which determined the Salem Witch Trials. He was also the first to publicly apologize for his involvement. Um, he was pretty, pretty disgusted with that, made a confession, um, a public confession citing Matthew 12, 7, quote, if ye had known that what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you will not condemn the guiltless. So he was very open about the fact that what they had done was wrong and then eventually becomes, I don't want to say anti-Puritan, but certainly breaks away from traditional values. So I think he's an interesting guy. And if you were listening, I already said that he actually donated part of the land for the expansion of Copps Hill. And that land belonged to the family of his first wife. Her name is Hannah Hall. She dies in 1717. And her father is a very wealthy Boston merchant. So he had lived in the north part of Boston. So he gave away some of his in-laws land that he inherited. But the other thing that he inherited was their tomb. So his tomb is known as the Hall Sewell tomb because his in-laws were the first to be buried there. 
And it's very interesting because he and Hannah are quite tragic. So first of all, they have 14 children. Um, of those, seven are stillborn. Seven, or excuse me, one was stillborn. Seven die in infancy. And then of the rest of them, only three survive him. Very, very tragic. His second wife, Abigail, who he marries in 1719, dies just seven months into their marriage. His third wife, Mary Gibbs, does outlive him, along with three of his children. So the statistics speak well to how bad things are. And this is one of the reasons he made the public apology about Salem, too, is he felt like he was cursed because of what he did. Um, I don't know if he was that superstitious, but that's the way people paint it. He's also noteworthy because his diaries, which he keeps most of his life, are considered one of the finest examples of what daily life was like in the Boston colonies at that time. So I want to read his entry from December of 1696, where he discusses a visit to the Granary Burial Ground following the burial of his two-year-old daughter, Sarah, who was the eighth of his children to die. Quote, I ordered little Sarah to be set on her grandmother's feet. That would be Judith Hall, his, his wife's mother. Twas awful yet pleasing treat. Having said, the Lord knows who shall be brought hither next. I came away. So it's, there's often a push, I think, to claim that there is a lack of sentimentality to the Puritans, that they were very cold and very rigid and things like that. But I think certainly, you know, you see the grief of a father. And one of the most interesting things that I read that I was not well aware of um, was that Cotton Mather was one of Sewell's good friends. So Cotton Mather had a child who died at four months old. He had a number of children die as well. And he preached a sermon called Right Thoughts in Sad Hours, representing the comforts and duties of good men under all their afflictions, and particularly that one, The Untimely Death of Children, and he dedicated it to a very worthy friend, Mr. S.S. Quote, It was from God that we received those dear pledges, our children, and it is to God we return them. We cannot quarrel with our God. If about these loans, he says unto us, give them up. You have had them long enough. We know what they were when we first took them into our arms. We know that they are potsherds, that they were mortals, that the worms which sometime kill them, or at least will eat them, but are their namesakes. And that a dead child is a sight no more surprising than a broken pitcher or a blasted flower. That is Puritan. Um, Mather would go on to lose 12 of his 14 children. And I would point to this in terms of anti-vaccination. No, I mean, seriously, if you look at the accounts of these, though, it's clear that they are dying of common diseases. Things like measles, things like the mumps, things like scarlet fever. This infant mortality is incredibly high. And the fact that you have just this sheer volume of children being buried really speaks to the ravages the disease played on this point in history. But I think it's interesting that, you know, Cotton Mather, who I already talked about in terms of his family tomb at Copps Hill, 
Now, Samuel Sewell, they, they, you see very distinctive patterns being followed by these individuals at this point in history. They have common belief sets. They have common experiences. And also, when it comes to death, they have certain patterns that they are following. Now, one last thing I feel like the need to mention, just because I think it's an interesting fact, um, Samuel Sewell also publishes the first book that is anti-slavery in the United States. I don't think that anyone is certainly perfect that I have talked about in the story in terms of American history. Um, John Hancock, in fact, had his slave buried right next to him, and his grave is marked with a grave that says, Servant of, and I already mentioned um, in the two-part episode that I did on black cemeteries, talking about how in the colonial era, servant was a euphemism for slave. But there was a big push, and he published a book called The Selling of Joseph in 1700, which is very early on, where he says, quote, liberty is in real value next unto life. None ought to part with it themselves or deprive others of it. So I think that there is something to be said for the fact that I don't know how good the interpretation or interpretation of this information is on the Freedom Trail, but there's a lot of important history that ties into what will later be emancipation. And I have a wonderful portrait that was painted um, of Mr. Alcott visiting the Granary Burial Ground, um, looking at Bronson Alcott paying a visit there. It's held by the Boston Athenaeum. I'll post a picture of it. When abolition becomes a big push, not that long after, in the early to mid-19th century, they're taking their cues from some of these original folks. And so while the Founding Fathers are far from perfect, I think there's a lot of, not necessarily hidden, but well-disguised history that if you do get a chance to visit the Freedom Trail, I would like you to seek that out because I think that there's a lot of important stories to be told here that aren't necessarily on the interpretive panels. Now, all of these cemeteries are being taken very good care of. Do not fret if you go there and you see natural deterioration. They are old. They are unbelievably old. A lot of them are new and they are replacements. So, for example, um, the Franklin Monument wasn't placed there until the 1830s. Um, it's made of granite, the same granite that was used to make the Bunker Hill Monument, of course. Um... The cemetery was closed in 1880, so it's no longer active, but it's definitely being taken care of. Um, as I said, it's well recorded. It's something that really, I think there's a ton of work still being doing, uh, being done. In 2016, um, they restored the granite wall around the cemetery, which was put there in 1860. They did a lot of repairs on the ornamental cast iron fencing. Um, all of these burial grounds, while they definitely are old, they are well cared for and well loved. And I would hope that they continue to take smart precautions because they are so visited. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of perspective on these early cemeteries. Like I said, I hate to over push sort of the traditional American stories, but I tried to focus on a few interesting facts Hopefully it gives you a bit of a different perspective on the American Revolution, on the 4th of July, and on that early history. 
not perfect men, but still things that are important to be considered in terms of our experience as Americans. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, please rate and review. Apple Podcast is weighing these reviews more than ever. So if you have never logged in, like log in, give me a five-star rating. I would really enjoy it. Uh, it's certainly not for my own self-gratification. It's just to help people find the podcast to make it much more visible out there. As always, follow along on Facebook and Instagram, Two Movie View Podcast on both of those if you are interested in additional content, looking at some pretty pictures, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are celebrating, depending on where you are, have a hot dog, watch some fireworks, watch a parade, do whatever you want to do. Either way, enjoy your day off. Be mindful about your American history and enjoy your 4th of July. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.